0: Last week I spoke about faith, and the different stages of faith, being bright faith, verified faith, and unshakable faith. Until we have unshakable faith, there will be times when our mind is clouded by doubt, uncertainty, not seeing clearly, we will be confused about what it is we can place our hearts upon. So, tonight I would like to focus on doubt and some of the other ways that we get confused or we simply cannot see what is the truth of life. Beginning with doubt, Doubt itself is one of the five hindrances, as we're probably all familiar with, the five hindrances being desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. The hindrances being um, conditions in the mind that when they're present, they color or obscure the mind from clear seeing and from the deepening of concentration. Doubt has its own challenges. Uh, It tends to be that when doubt is present in the mind, we become immobilized in our practice. And doubt can be very difficult to see because when it's present, we so believe it to be true. Doubt is when we have what's called the uh, armchair meditator stance, where we're sitting back and trying to analyze our experience, we're thinking about our experience, rather than touching into the immediacy of life, rather than touching into our own direct experience. When doubt is present, we might notice that the mind is very indecisive. You know, it can be sitting and trying to figure out what technique we should employ in this moment. But we can't settle upon a certain technique. And we keep randomly choosing techniques and applying them for a brief moment before we find ourselves speculating that this isn't right. And so we change the technique again. Mm -hmm. Doubt can appear in our experiences in very convincing voices. One of the voices that we hear with doubt is that of self-doubt. And self-doubt tends to be something that's very prevalent in our society today whether it's because we're living in a culture that is so competitive. You know, I recently read a book that was a true story, and it was describing how people place their children in kindergartens that are going to ensure that, actually not even kindergarten, in preschool, that will ensure that their children make their way to the best universities and colleges. And this starts grooming us to be perfect. And once we start being groomed to be perfect, we will inevitably face this fear of failure, of not being good enough. Or we might find that self-doubt arises through Uh, Conditioning uh, that we received as children. And sometimes it doesn't take much to set off self doubt. You know, I can clearly remember in my own experience a teacher in a singing class implying that somebody was a little bit out of tune. And that was me. I knew it was me. And, you know, it was many years later when I looked back at my report card. Uh, for that time, and I discovered that actually I had top marks. But in that one mi- moment of the teacher mentioning that somebody was out of tune, I knew I wasn't good enough. And I carried that. You know, I've carried it a lot through my life, especially when it comes to singing. <laughs> but we, we somehow get this conditioning that we aren't good enough, and it sets up this self doubt. we find with self-doubt that it creeps into our practice. We can hear it in many different ways. Maybe we've heard uh, someone talking about anatta, the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience. And we think it's impossible, we'll never be able to directly know of this experience or sometimes we have a very inspiring experience in practice and then doubt creeps in just who do you think you are you know that it tries to take away the validity of the experience we've just had there's also the voice of doubt that knows a better way knows a better technique or is suspicious of what is being taught. We hear it in the way of, this isn't the right practice for me. These conditions aren't supportive enough. I need a better teacher. The way my teacher teaches is much more effective. Even sometimes we can be going along quite nicely in practice. And then suddenly we have the thought, If this is the wrong way to practice, I could spend my whole life doing this and never getting anywhere. How do I know that this is the right practice? Whenever doubt arises, and we listen to its voice, we leave it unrecognized, we stop applying our attention our confidence becomes shattered and we start getting caught in discursive thinking or speculating about our experience rather than opening to what is happening. And doubt then becomes the lens through which we're viewing our life. Doubt can also be a way of investing our ego in our beliefs. This is where we might find a strong sense of self-righteousness or cynicism. We try to protect ourselves through putting on a veneer of bravado or a, a veneer of cleverness. We tend to think we're quite smart when we get caught in doubt in this way. You know, it's as if we really know something better. And yet, in those moments, we aren't applying ourselves wholeheartedly to the practice, to being present. We get caught in our beliefs about the way things are. And this kind of cloaks us with this false sense of security. When we hang on to our beliefs, we're hanging on to our past experiences or views that cuts us off from the direct experience of life in this moment. At this time, our world becomes very narrow and constricted. I remember when I first began sitting with Sayada Upandita, It was after several years of practicing with another teacher. But I'd heard that Sayadaw was an excellent Vipassana teacher and I decided that it was time for some serious practice. Upon hearing his initial instructions, I found it to be conflicting with my own ideas of what meditation was. These ideas that I had from my previous teacher that weren't grounded in my own understanding. So this was a one-month retreat. And after the very first Dharma talk, you know, the very, in that very first Dharma talk, the hair on the back of my neck actually felt like it was standing on end, because um, it was really hitting upon the belief structure that I had about meditation. So this was a one-month retreat, and after the first day I thought that I might leave. But then I decided that I would stay until I had my first interview, because I had heard such good things about Sayara Upandita. So when I went into my first interview, which was after a time of really struggling with the practice, it took a couple of days before that interview happened. But when I went in and I started reporting on my experience, and having a lot of difficulty finding the words to express that was ha- what was happening. And so finally he says to me, Do you doubt that this, ex- that this practice is for you? And when he said that, you know, it was just a total ring of truth. You know, and I just almost literally jumped up and said, Yes! Because that was exactly what my experience was in that moment. And so he went on to explain to me how this practice had worked for many people and people who had not even faith. And he said to just simply treat it as a scientific experiment. So I took his advice and I followed that instruction. And I decided to do this for the period of the retreat, for one month. Many times during that retreat I hit upon my beliefs and I simply set them aside and looked into this way of practicing, this way of applying my attention, just to see what it could offer. And this is one way of working with doubt as it often manifests on the retreat. Not the right technique, not the right trap practice. And, you know, coming here to practice at the Forest Refuge, you're given a much more free rein in what practice you might try. And so that's where you might um, have difficulty in settling into one form of practice. But I really encourage you to do this, to not to keep flip-flopping about, but to wholeheartedly apply yourself to whatever Uh, type of practice we have talked about and um, decided to explore together, and then really just to see, to stick with it, and to see what the benefit of this practice might be. On another level, doubt is just a thought. And look at your experience. Look at, even in one day, one sitting, the great number of thoughts that arise. How some of them seem really bizarre, um, wild, seem to have nothing to do with not only what's happening in our experience now, but what's ever happened in our life. We can't possibly imagine the circumstances through which these thoughts have arisen. And yet they do. They simply arise, uninvited. And this is the same with doubt. And doubt being another form of the thinking mind. And when we can really see it as being thinking. We can see it as just another appearance in the mind, arising and passing away. And not when we're not caught up into the voice of doubt, what it's telling us. It doesn't have that power. It doesn't stop us, as doubt so often does. And when we can see it just as another um, appearance in the mind, it actually becomes an object of meditation, a place that we can rest in the knowing of this experience. So in these moments, it's not a hindrance to our practice, but actually can turn to the vehicle for our practice. Doubt tends to arise when there is a lot of confusion in the mind, a lot of thoughts and the endless speculation. But if we stay steady with our experience, and we keep returning to the present moment, it helps to dispel the confusion. There's antidotes to all of the hindrances through working with a specific jhanic factor. The jhanic factors are the factors of mind that are present when concentration is strong. The jhanic factor that is the antidote to doubt is that of vichara, or sustaining the attention, rubbing the mind with the experience in the present moment, or the object of our meditation. We dispel the darkness by really coming close to our experience. We allow the mind to merge with the object, with what's really happening now, diving into the experience. And when we do this, there's no room for doubt. Sometimes doubt can be very strong, and we get pulled into it over and over again. And the tendency can be, uh, rather than being with this unpleasant mind state, to want to come to a definitive conclusion, to take action that will take us out of this uncomfortableness, to make it go away, But it becomes a very different experience, rather than grasping at, trying to have some firm footing or definite conclusion, to instead sitting in the place of inquiry, investigation, looking, opening to, being with this experience. It's not the analytical investigation, but simply staying steady. And it can allow us to turn doubt from being this speculative thinking to a place of deep inquiry. Because doubt is a part of the spiritual journey. But rather than getting caught in speculation, sitting in a place of not knowing, sitting in the place of inquiry. Rainer Rilke says, I would like to beg you to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. So turning doubt, From this speculative thinking, discursive thinking, into this place of inquiry, openness, availability. Of the three personality types that we hear about in Buddhist teachings, um, being the greedy type, the aversive type, and the deluded type, I happen to be the deluded type, which makes me quite familiar with the state of doubt. I'm kind of so deluded that I could never figure out what personality type I actually was until I heard a talk by Sharon Salzberg on the subject. And she was talking about how one of a deluded temperament would easily lose confidence in their perceptions. And this I could relate to, seeing it so often in my own experience. How um I could feel quite confident about something, and then someone comes along and offers a different viewpoint, or says simply that this is wrong. and then you know immediately I think, "Oh, I'm mistaken. And I discovered that this happens, you know, not even without with needing someone else to come along, but one time I had an experience where a friend had lent me her car because mine wasn't working so well. And so one day, I left home, and I was driving past IMS in her car. And as I looked up at IMS in the parking lot, I saw a car that was the same color as her car, and looked to be the same make. As I saw this, I looked at it, and I thought, Oh, I thought for sure I I was driving that car today. You know, I hadn't... uh, I just, in that instant, didn't have that trust or faith in my own perceptions. I had, you know, and I've had many, many of these experiences where the deluded mind was present. Another one w- really helped me to see how doubt functions in the mind and how it could be worked with. It happened that I was driving to a nearby town named Ware. And someone had given me instructions to go to the hospital there, going a different route than the way that I normally go, to a different part of town. So after my appointment in the hospital, I got into the car and I had a sense of where I was in the town and thought that I could find a quicker way home. So I started driving the way, you know, following my instincts, how I should go. And then I came to the intersection, which should be the crossroads for entering onto the road that I knew. As I went through the intersection, it happened to be a green light, so it didn't give me a long time to get my bearings. Which may not have mattered, because as a diluted type, it tends to be that when you're traveling in a car, you don't really pay much attention to the passing scenery so anyhow, I go through this green light, and then suddenly the mind goes, Oh, I should know where I am. And I start looking around for signposts to tell me that I'm on the right road. And everything was looking unfamiliar. And so as I continued, I started to get more and more fearful, panic-stricken. And there came the moment of, Oh my God! What should I do?" And you could feel that freezing up happening. You know, I was ready to pull over and ask somebody where I was, what road I should be on. And, you know, this is one of the examples in the text that's given to describe doubt. It's that of a traveler coming on a crossroads and not being sure which way to go. And rather than embarking on one way, just stop, freezing, not moving. And, then, and so that really um, happened on that drive. But then, you know, I started to recognize doubt, and I remembered what you do in meditation when doubt arises. You start connecting with your experience. So I started looking, and I started seeing all kinds of things on this street. And it was like everything was new, everything was fresh. And then suddenly I finally saw something that told me I was on the right road. But I also saw what can happen when, you know, rather than distancing, freezing, speculating, one engages, one becomes present, one looks. The world opens up in a whole new way. Everything is new. Doubt can be hard to see, can be hard to recognize. One of the signals for recognizing it can be that niggling feeling that something's wrong, something's not quite right. And then looking to see what's happening, what's the atmosphere in the mind right there. And so often we'll find that it's doubt. We're not trusting in our experience. It's very important to learn to recognize it. This is how we begin to work with it. We develop the direct relationship, and then to look at the components of doubt, to be with the different aspects of it, to see there may be fear, insecurity, to see that there is distance, not connection. To notice how the conditions that are present with what seems like a really solid mind state is not so solid when we start to unpick it, to unravel, to see how it moves and changes. As we pay attention to it, it begins to lighten and can become a great relief. We become familiar with doubt so we can regain our faith so that we can once again find trust. So doubt is one of the obscurations of faith. Another obscuration of faith is that of the conceptual mind. The conceptual mind that gets shaken as we practice. This happens naturally in our practice as mindfulness strengthens and takes us into the pre-conceptual level. We can see this on the simplest level of being with the body, and not holding hard and fast to the concepts of this body. But what happens when we drop into the direct experience? And in doing that, we have to let go of the ideas we have about the body, the study of anatomy that we've done, the ideas of how the body could, is, should function, and we just drop into the experience of how things are being known in the body right then. And it's the quality of trust or faith that will help us shift to uh, being caught on the level of the conceptual mind into our direct experience. This will help us to step into beginner's mind, but we will be faced with shaking up of this conceptual world, which is often very uncomfortable, can bring up a lot of fear, can be terrifying at times, as reality as we thought it was begins to crumble. But it's a necessary step. Because if our faith is based upon a conceptual reality, then it's like building a castle on shifting sand. And that conceptual mind is always going to be challenged, always going to be shaken up, because it is not the truth of the way things are. There's a couple of ways that we commonly get caught in our conceptual mind as we practice. One is that the path is linear, that we have this idea that things will become progressively clearer and clearer, there'll be less and less suffering, and we'll have more and more pleasant experience. It's a nice idea. But it's not the way practice unfolds. We will at times find these ideas of uh, this one being the linear progression of practice uh, when, when we start to get rattled by our beliefs that we're caring about practice such as, you know, we've been through a phase where we maybe got caught in a strong form of lust in the mind that was unbearable at times. You know, the whole body caught in the sense of wanting and desire. And then a breakthrough happened. We saw it in a different way, and it completely disappeared. And then, you know, we went through a period where we would be in in circumstances where that lust would have arisen in the past, and it didn't. And we would really think we were free of it. It was finished. And then, one day, it arose again. We were caught in just the same way we had been before. If we're holding the idea that the path is linear, right then we will feel betrayed. We will f- lose our faith. We will lose our confidence. We will feel shattered. And yet, all we really have to do is note this once again. Be with it. It tends to be that many of our desires, places of aversion, whatever we may be struggling with, will circle around over and over and what changes is our way of relating to them. So, letting go of this concept that once we've really worked through something, it won't arise again. Another thing that can happen uh, where we get caught in conceptual mind is having a moment of insight and then trying to overlay that onto our experience. A moment where we deeply touched into impermanence, the simplicity of being with the breath, and seeing the beginning and the ending of the breath, experiencing it so dramatically that it was a real shaking up of the way we viewed life. But then, rather than seeing that again in the next moment, we start to Uh, hold the view of impermanence, and we start to try to find impermanence, and to uh, contemplate impermanence through the mind, rather than being with impermanence in our experience. This conceptual mind is a challenge. You know, uh, we, you know, I've been talking about faith and an intuitive knowing or trusting in the inherent goodness, and yet when we hear that, we try to conceptualize it. We, you know, the other night Steve Armstrong was talking about the unconditioned, the unfabricated, and knowing that it's unconditioned. We still start to make it a conceptual reality. We start to try to construct it in our mind. And yet, so it's really only faith or trust that will allow us to let go of these ideas, beliefs, views, and opinions that we get so stuck in, so that we can really step into the unknown. And faith or trust really helps us to relax into not knowing, not having to hold this constructed view of reality so tightly, but to let the mind loosen its grip and really just dropping into our own experience. What's happening now? And resting in a groundlessness, resting in the fluidity of change. So concepts, beliefs, views, and opinions can be other ways that obscure faith or trust. Another way that we lose trust and confidence is when we identify with our hopes and fears. These hopes and fears are agitations in the mind that are really contrary to the deep relaxation of trust. They keep us caught in the push and pull of life moving towards and away from our experience. Hope can seem like it's a friend of faith. And sometimes we can even get them mixed up. But hope has an element of some expectation, something to attain, something to become, um, a future that is more promising in the present, where faith is that implicit knowing that things as they are, are fundamentally fine. So much of our lives we find ourselves caught up in hope. And when we're in hope, we are never able to fully accept the way that things are unfolding. Hope has a way of reducing this moment to a commodity or a means to an end. Where we are with our knee pain in hopes that it will disappear and we will be okay. We're with our breath in hope that calm and peace will come. Where it's a commodity for something brighter in the future. And this has a way of robbing us of the um, profoundness of this moment. It leaves us feeling that the present is not good enough, needs modification in order to be all right. Noticing how hope arises in your practice whether it's in the moments when things start to feel good, concentration starts to strengthen, and we start to move into some kind of expectation. Really, in those moments, notice the energy of hope. What happens? Because as the concentration is strengthening, you know, it can be really a deepening of stillness, of receptivity, of allowing. And then hope, it's got that movement of tightening, leaning forward, of wanting. Just feeling how it agitates the mind. sometimes the more subtle forms of hope can be harder to detect. Harder to see where um, hope is lingering. And this is where I found it really helpful to drop in the phrase, this is it. And just to see what happens as this phrase is dropped in. To see what the response of the mind is. This is it. Ah peace, calmness, stillness, where this is it. Ah! This can't be it. This is part of a poem by Wendell Berry called The Wild Geese. In the ancient faith, What we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. What we need is here. This is the voice of faith. Can we rest in this? What we need is here so hard for us to believe. The flip side of hope is fear. Fear is a form of aversion, a quality of shrinking back, pulling back from experience that happens when we feel threatened in some way. Fear that robs us of that nobility of heart, keeps us small, separate, alienated. Fear becomes very prevalent or strong in our minds when we get caught in the projection of our fear when we start really listening to what is being said about our experience. And fear so often is about some fantasy, some imagination, something that we're projecting into the future rather than what's happening in our experience. In moments of fear or panic, it's as if we abandon this ship, and we hand the controls over to our imagination. Michael Pritchard said about fear, fear is like a little dark room where negatives are developed. We, in moments of fear, are often caught in these phantoms of our mind where we're not seeing clearly we're thinking again. And fear is quite, I think I mentioned this recently, quite unavoidable that we will hit in our practice as we step into the unknown, as we step into uncertainty, as we let go of the conceptual mind as we really sit with impermanence, that fear will arise in our experience. And so it becomes necessary to learn to work with the fear, to be with the fear, to stand steady in the face of the fear, to be able to find balance when the fear is overwhelming to see what is the truth of what we can open to with this fear. You know, sometimes it's just so overwhelming that we can't see into its empty essence. We can't see that it really has no substantial nature. And so, at those times, remembering to turn the attention where we can find refuge. but not being afraid to dive into the fear, to feel it. What does fear feel like? The coldness, you know, often there's shaking. You know, sometimes it almost feels death-like. The breath may be broken and may almost feel like we're gasping. And yet, when we can just see it, know it, we're not running from it, it loses its power.
1: It becomes
0: an empty shadow. You may notice in your practice how we often go between hope and fear. It's, you know, in one moment we're in hope and the next moment we're in fear. We come to a retreat, we're in hope. You know, we have a lot of expectation of what might unfold. And then, as we practice, and we come into this um, scene of impermanence, the fear arises. Or maybe you're coming towards the end of your stay here, and there's fear that you haven't got what you came for. And, And so we just watch how we move from hope to fear, learning to recognize these, and seeing how, when they're present, they obscure faith, trust, confidence.
1: Noticing, in our experience,
0: obscurations of faith and trust, whether it's through the the voice of doubt, self-doubt, whether it's through getting caught in the conceptual mind, whether it's through getting caught in hope and fear, learning to recognize these mind states, these obscurations, and remembering that we can turn to our experience, move closer to our experience, learn to rest in this unfolding, the unfolding of the Dhamma. learning to surrender to this experience. And when we can really rest and surrender to our experience, anything is possible. We can turn doubt from being that of endless skepticism into a place of inquiry, investigation, which can open us up to the mystery of life, where we can instead be sitting in a place of awe and wonder with the unfolding of our experience. A few years ago, I went to Burma, and I temporarily ordained as a nun. It was something that I had really wanted to do in my life, to go and live as a nun amongst nuns, living with the daughters of the Buddha, and sharing in the wisdom of their lives. I wanted to do this to see if there was something in the way that they lived that I could apply to my own life in my lay life here. This was to be a trip where I went uh, not to go and do intensive practice as my last few visits to Burma had been, but to go and live uh, amongst people who were committed to uh, a life of uncovering the Dharma in their lives, to seeing the truth, to living a life of simplicity. And having been there before, I knew that there were a lot of conditions that can be very trying. And I knew that I wanted to go to an area of Burma where very little English was spoken. But my hope was to go and to be able to work side by side with the nuns. I knew that language could very likely be a barrier, but I had the sense that if I was living amongst them it would be as if the teachings would come through osmosis. I knew it would be very challenging and yet I felt ready to live up to that challenge. I arrived in Burma and I ordained with my teacher. And ordaining itself was a very affirming um, action. I had the sense of the outer world and the inner world being in alignment. After ordaining with my teacher Sayadaw Ujanaka, he sent me up to a nunnery in Sagain Hills. And Sagain Hills is a very beautiful part of Burma. It has the Irrawaddy River flowing beside it, and it's dotted with hilltops that have a lot of monasteries, nunneries, and pagodas. It's an area that I had traveled to a number of years before and when I had been there, I had just had this feeling that I really wanted to go back there and to practice. It, it was a place where uh, you just had the sense, as if you could walk around the corner and f- see the Buddha, that you were really walking in the footsteps of the Buddha. You know, there was a lot of monks and nuns and, you know, it, it's not so modern. <clears throat> It turned out to be a very powerful time for me. And as is often the case with powerful times, it can be very uncomfortable in the living of them. There was many difficulties that I encountered during that time. I traveled with a couple of friends who, we at first went to the nunnery that uh, Sayadaw Janaka had sent me to, and we found the condition so hard there that we both, all of us, had decided it probably wasn't a good place for me to stay. That it would really be quite trying to stay there. Then we went to another nunnery that we had visited earlier, where the conditions were a bit better. And that my friends left me there. Uh, and I did find the language to really be a barrier. I found that um, Because it was a study nunnery, that uh, there was a lot of conversation around me, and I became very isolated feeling, uh, because I was not a part of this. was many difficulties that I faced there, of which I won't go into in this talk. But I found that my faith was very challenged, and um, it was a hard time. Actually, one of the hardest times that I remember uh, in my practice. And, you know, I did. I just kept turning up as best I could. I was fighting with the hindrances all the time. Uh, and, you know, really at times wondering why I was doing this. Why was I doing this? I could remember, you know, I could think that I could have stayed in the monastery where I'd ordained and I could have done intensive practice there know, and, uh, and that would you know set me off. Or I'd remember that I could have stayed home, and it was a time when I could have practiced in uh, a quiet little cabin by myself. But here I was in this nunnery, not sure why I was there, not seeing much point in, in being there in the way that I was. You know, I'd, I'd go to breakfast and I'd find that um, they were trying to teach me Burmese. I'm hopeless with languages. So, you know, they're trying to teach me how to spay, say spoon and fork in Burmese. And I, you know, every day I'd forget and I'd come back and they'd try and tell me again. And then I'd go back to my room and I'd say, what does this have to do with liberation? And, you know, I was really seeing no point to this. But I just kept staying steady, I kept being with it. And then finally, it was time to go. And, you know, I had traveled back to uh, Yangon. My friends had taken me to the airport. And I was sitting in the airport. And as I was sitting there, I was replaying my time there. And just wondering, why did I have to do this? What was the point in it all? And as I was sitting there, in this airport, replaying this, um, there came, there was this big video screen in front of me, which in itself was quite a miraculous sight in Burma, which tends to be not such a modern place. But there was this video screen, and it was playing a Sarah McLachlan video clip. And right at the moment when I looked up at this video clip, there was the line from one of her songs, which I didn't hear quite right in the moment. But the line was, Living in the mystery. That's what I heard. And I heard this, living in a mystery. And I heard that, and it just broke something in me. It was like letting go of having to know what was happening. What, what, wh- how I was going to benefit from this what it was all about and it just allowed me to drop into the place of faith the place of trust where I could sit in a place of unknowing and relax release the heart and we find when we can really sit In this place of mystery, this place of awe, when we can sit in the unknown, this is where the grace of the Dhamma reveals itself. Where we can sit in the mystery, living in this mystery with faith, trust and confidence so let's sit for a
1: moment God is my supreme support.